Welcome to the Resilient Mind Podcast. We strive to empower people all over the world with information so they can strengthen their mind and thrive during difficult times. If you would like to contribute to our mission, you can subscribe or support through the link in the show notes. In this episode, you will be listening to The Master Key System with Charles Honnell. Enjoy. The kind of deity which a man consciously or unconsciously worships indicates the intellectual status of the worshiper. Ask the Indian of God, and he will describe to you a powerful chieftain of a glorious tribe. Ask the pagan of God, and he'll tell you of a god of fire, a god of water, a god of this, that, and the other. Ask the Israelite of God, and he will tell you of the god of Moses, who conceived it expedient to rule by coercive measures, hence the Ten Commandments. Or of Joshua, who led the Israelites into battle, confiscated property, murdered the prisoners, and laid waste to cities. The so-called heathen made graven images of their gods, whom they were accustomed to worship, but among the most intelligent at least these images were but the visible fulcrums with which they were enabled to mentally concentrate on the qualities which they desired to externalize in their lives. We of the 21st century worship a god of love in theory, but in practice we make for ourselves graven images of wealth, power, fashion, custom, and conventionality. We fall down before them and worship them. We concentrate on them, and they are thereby externalized in our lives. The student who masters the contents of Part 17 will not mistake the symbols for the reality. He will be interested in causes rather than effects. He will concentrate on the realities of life and will then not be disappointed in the results. We are told that man has dominion over all things. This dominion is established through mind. Thought is the activity which controls every principle beneath it. The highest principle, by reason of its superior essence and qualities, necessarily determines the circumstances, aspects, and relation of everything with which it comes in contact. The vibrations of mental forces are the finest and consequently the most powerful in existence. To those who perceive the nature and transcendency of mental force, all physical power sinks into insignificance. We're accustomed to look upon the universe with a lens of five senses, and from these experiences our anthropomorphic conceptions originate. But true conceptions are only secured by spiritual insight. This insight requires a quickening of the vibrations of the mind, and is only secured when the mind is continuously concentrated in a given direction. Continuous concentration means an even, unbroken flow of thought, and is the result of patient, persistent, persevering, and well-regulated systems. Great discoveries are the result of long-continued investigation. The science of mathematics requires years of concentrated effort to master it, and the greatest science, that of the mind, is revealed only through concentrated effort. Concentration is much misunderstood. There seems to be an idea of effort or activity associated with it when just the contrary is necessary. The greatness of an actor lies in the fact that he forgets himself in the portrayal of his character, becoming so identified with it that the audience is swayed by the realism of the performance. This will give you a good idea of true concentration. You should be so interested in your thought, so engrossed in your subject as to be conscious of nothing else. Such concentration leads to intuitive perception and immediate insight into the nature of all knowledge is the result of concentration of this kind. It is thus that the secrets of heaven and earth have been wrested. It is thus that the mind becomes a magnet, and the desire to know draws the knowledge, irresistibly attracts it, and makes it your own. Desire is largely subconscious. 
Conscious desire rarely realizes its object when the latter is out of immediate reach. Subconscious desire arouses the latent faculties of the mind, and difficult problems seem to solve themselves. The subconscious mind may be aroused and brought into action in any direction, and made to serve us for any purpose by concentration. The practice of concentration requires the control of the physical, mental, and physical being. All modes of consciousness, whether physical, mental, or physical, must be under control. Spiritual truth is therefore the controlling factor. It is this which will enable you to grow out of limited attainment and reach a point where you will be able to translate modes of thought into character and consciousness. Concentration does not mean mere thinking of thoughts, but the transmutation of these thoughts into practical values. The average person has no conception of the meaning of concentration. There is always the cry to have, but never the cry to be. They fail to understand that they cannot have one without the other, that they must first find the kingdom before they can have the things added. Momentary enthusiasm is of no value. It is only with unbounded self-confidence that the goal is reached. The mind may place the ideal a little too high and fall short of the mark. It may attempt to soar on untrained wings and, instead of flying, fall to earth. But that is not a reason for making another attempt. Weakness is the only barrier to mental attainment. Attribute your weakness to physical limitations or mental uncertainties and try again. Ease and perfection are gained by repetition. The astronomer centers his mind on the stars and they give forth their secrets. The geologist centers his mind on the construction of the earth and we have geology. So with all things. Men center their minds on the problems of life and the result is apparent in the vast and complex social order of the day. All mental discovery and attainment are the result of desire plus concentration. Desire is the strongest mode of action. The more persistent the desire, the more authoritative the revelation. Desire added to concentration will wrench any secret from nature. In realizing great thoughts, in experiencing great emotions that correspond with great thoughts, the mind is in a state where it appreciates the value of higher things. The intensity of one moment's earnest concentration and the intense longing to become and to attain may take you further than years of slow, normal, and forced effort. It will unfasten the prison bars of unbelief, weakness, impotence, and self-belittlement, and you will come into a realization of the joy of overcoming. The spirit of initiative and originality is developed through persistence and continuity of mental effort. Business teaches the value of concentration and encourages decision of character. It develops practical insight and quickness of conclusion. The mental element in every commercial pursuit is dominant as the controlling factor, and desire is the predominating force. All commercial relations are the externalization of desire. Many of the sturdy and substantial virtues are developed in commercial employment. The mind is steadied and directed. It becomes efficient. The principal necessity is the strengthening of the mind so that it rises superior to the distractions and wayward impulses of instinctive life and thus successfully overcomes in the conflict between the higher and lower self. All of us are dynamos, but the dynamo of itself is nothing. The mind must work the dynamo. Then it is useful and its energy can be definitely concentrated. The mind is an engine whose power is undreamed. Thought is an omni-working power. It's the ruler and creator of all form and all events occurring in form. Physical energy is nothing in comparison with the omnipotence of thought because thought enables man 
to harness all other natural power. Vibration is the action of thought. It is vibration which reaches out and attracts the material necessary to construct and build. There is nothing mysterious concerning the power of thought. Concentration simply implies that consciousness can be focalized to the point where it becomes identified with the object of its attention. As food absorbed is the essence of the body, so the mind absorbs the object of its attention, gives it life and being. If you concentrate on some matter of importance, the intuitive power will be set in operation, and help will come in the nature of information which will lead to success. Intuition arrives at conclusions without the aid of experience or memory. Intuition often solves problems that are beyond the grasp of the reasoning power. Intuition often comes with a suddenness that is startling. It reveals the truth for which we are searching so directly that it seems to come from a higher power. Intuition can be cultivated and developed. In order to do this, it must be recognized and appreciated. If the intuitive visitor is given a royal welcome when he comes, he'll come back again. The more cordial the welcome, the more frequent his visits will become. But if he is ignored or neglected, he will make his visits few and far apart. Intuition usually comes in the silence. Great minds seek solitude frequently. It is here that all the larger problems of life are worked out. For this reason, every businessman who can afford it has a private office, for he won't be disturbed. If you cannot afford a private office, you can at least find somewhere where you can be alone a few minutes each day to train the thought along lines which will enable you to develop that invincible power which is necessary to achieve. Remember that fundamentally the subconscious is omnipotent. There is no limit to the things that can be done when it is given the power to act. Your degree of success is determined by the nature of your desire. If the nature of your desire is in harmony with natural law or the universal mind, it will gradually emancipate the mind and give you invincible courage. Every obstacle conquered, every victory gained will give you more faith in your power, and you'll have greater ability to win. Your strength is determined by your mental attitude. If this attitude is one of success, and is permanently held with an unswerving purpose, you will attract to you from the invisible domain the things that you silently demand. By keeping the thought in mind, it will gradually take tangible form. A definite purpose sets causes in motion which go out in the invisible world and find the material necessary to serve your purpose. You may be pursuing the symbols of power instead of power itself. You may be pursuing fame instead of honor, riches instead of wealth, position instead of servitude. In either event, you will find that they turn to ashes just as you overtake them. Premature wealth or position cannot be retained because it has not been earned. We get only what we give, and those who try to get without giving always find that the law of compensation is relentlessly bringing about an exact equilibrium. The race has usually been for money and other mere symbols of power, but with an understanding of the true source of power, we can afford to ignore the symbols. The man with a large bank account finds it unnecessary to load his pockets down with gold. So with the man who has found the true source of power, he is no longer interested in its shams or its pretensions. Thought ordinarily leads outwardly in evolutionary directions, but it can be turned within where it will take hold of the basic principles of things, the heart of things, the spirit of things. When you get to the heart of things, it is comparatively easy to understand and command them. Now this is because the spirit of a thing is the thing itself, the vital part of it.
the real substance, the form is simply the outward manifestation of the spiritual activity within. For your exercise this week, concentrate as nearly as possible in accordance with the method outlined in this lesson. Let there be no conscious effort or activity associated with your purpose. Relax completely. Avoid any thought of anxiety as to results. Remember that power comes through repose. Let the thought dwell upon your object until it is completely identified with it, until you are conscious of nothing else. If you wish to eliminate fear, concentrate on courage. If you wish to eliminate disease, concentrate on health. If you wish to eliminate lack, concentrate on abundance. Always concentrate on the ideal as an already existing fact. This is the germ cell, the life principle which goes forth and sets in motion those causes which guide, direct, and bring about the necessary relation which eventually manifests itself in form. It's like Emerson said, thought is the property of those only who can entertain it. In order to grow, we must obtain what is necessary for our growth. This is brought about through the law of attraction. This principle is the sole means by which the individual is differentiated from the universal. Think for a moment, what would a man be if he were not a husband, father, or brother, if he were not interested in the social, economical, political, or religious world? He would be nothing but an abstract, theoretical ego. He exists, therefore, only in his relation to the whole, in his relation to other men, in his relation to society. This relation constitutes his environment and in no other way. It is evident, therefore, that the individual is simply the differentiation of the one universal mind, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And his so-called individuality or personality consists of nothing but the manner in which he relates with the whole. This we call his environment, and is brought about by the law of attraction. Part 18, which follows, has something more to say concerning this important law. There is a change in the thought of the world. This change is silently transpiring in our midst and is more important than any which the world has undergone since the downfall of paganism. These present revolutions in the opinions of all classes of men, the highest and most cultured of men, as well as those of the laboring class, stands unparalleled in the history of the world. Science has of late made such vast discoveries, has revealed such an infinity of resources, has unveiled such enormous possibilities and such unsuspected forces that scientific men more and more hesitate to affirm certain theories as established and beyond doubt or to deny other theories as absurd or impossible. A new civilization is being born. Customs, creeds, and precedent are passing. Vision, faith, and service are taking their place. The fetters of tradition are being melted off from humanity, and as the impurities of materialism are being consumed, thought is being liberated, and truth is rising, full, robed before an astonished multitude. The whole world is on the eve of a new consciousness, a new power, and a new realization within the self. Physical science has resolved matter into molecules, molecules into atoms, and atoms into energy, and it has remained for Mr. J. A. Fleming, in an address before the Royal Institution, to resolve this energy into mind, he says, In its ultimate essence energy, man may be incomprehensible by us except as an exhibition of the direct operation of that which we call mind or will. And this mind is the indwelling and ultimate. It is immanent in matter as in spirit. It is the sustaining, energizing, all-pervading spirit 
of the universe. Every living thing must be sustained by this omnipotent intelligence, and we find the difference in individual lives to be largely measured by the degree of this intelligence which they manifest. It is greater intelligence that places the animal in a higher scale of being than the plant, the man higher than the animal, and we find that this increased intelligence is again indicated by the power of the individual to control modes of action and thus to consciously adjust himself to his environment. It is this adjustment that occupies the attention of the greatest minds, and this adjustment consists in nothing else than the recognition of an existing order in the universal mind, for it is well known that this mind will obey us precisely in proportion as we first obey it. It is the recognition of natural laws that has enabled us to annihilate time and space, to soar in the air and to make iron float, and the greater the degree of intelligence, the greater will be our recognition of these natural laws, and the greater will be the power that we can possess. It is the recognition of the self as an individualization of this universal intelligence that enables the individual to control those forms of intelligence which have not yet reached this level of self-recognition. They do not know that this universal intelligence permeates all things ready to be called into action. They do not know that it is a responsive to every demand, and they are therefore in bondage to the law of their own being. Thought is creative, and the principle on which the law is based is sound and legitimate, and is inherent in the nature of things. But this creative power does not originate in the individual, but in the universal, which is the source and foundation of all energy and substance. The individual is simply the channel for the distribution of this energy. The individual is simply the means by which the universal produces the various combinations which result in the formation of phenomena, which depends upon the law of vibration, whereby various rates of rapidity of motion in the primary substance form new substances only in certain exact numerical ratios. Thought is the invisible link by which the individual comes into communication with the universal. The finite with the infinite, the seen with the unseen, Thought is the magic by which the human is transformed into a being who thinks and knows and feels and acts. As the proper apparatus has enabled the eye to discover worlds without number millions of miles away, so with the proper understanding, man has been enabled to communicate with the universal mind, which is the source of all power. The understanding which is usually developed is about as valuable as a VCR without a videotape. In fact, it is usually nothing more than a belief which means nothing at all. The savages of the cannibal islands believe something, but that proves nothing. The only belief which is of any value to anyone is a belief that has been put to a test and demonstrated to be a fact. It is then no longer just a belief, but has become a living faith or truth. And this truth has been put to the test by hundreds of thousands of people, and has been found to be the truth exactly in proportion to the usefulness of the apparatus which they used. A man would not expect to locate stars hundreds of millions of miles away without a sufficiently strong telescope, and for this reason science is continually engaged in building larger and more powerful telescopes, and is continually rewarded by additional knowledge of the heavenly bodies. So with the understanding, men are continually making progress in the methods which they use to come into communication with the universal mind and its infinite possibilities. The universal mind manifests itself in the objective through the principle of attraction that each atom has for every other atom in infinite degrees of intensity. It's by this principle of combining and attracting that things are brought together, 
This principle is of universal application and is the sole means whereby the purpose of existence is carried into effect. The expression of growth is met in a most beautiful manner through the instrumentality of this universal principle. In order to grow, we must obtain what is essential for our growth, but as we are all times a complete thought entity, this completeness makes it possible for us to receive only as we give. Growth is therefore conditioned on reciprocal action, and we find that on the mental plane, like attracts like, that mental vibrations respond only to the extent of their vibratory harmony. It's clear, therefore, that thoughts of abundance will respond only to similar thoughts. The wealth of the individual is seen to be what he inherently is. Affluence within is found to be the secret of attraction for affluence without. The ability to produce is found to be the real source of wealth of the individual. It's for this reason that he who has his heart in his work is certain to meet with unbounded success. He will give and continually give, and the more he gives, the more he's going to receive. Now, what are the great financiers of Wall Street, the captains of industry, the statesmen, the great corporation attorneys, the inventors, the physicians, the authors? What do each of these contribute to the sum of human happiness but the power of their thought? Thought is the energy which the law of attraction is brought into operation, which eventually manifests in abundance. The universal mind is static mind, or substance in equilibrium. It is differentiated into form by our power to think. Thought is the dynamic phase of mind. Power depends upon consciousness of power. Unless we use it, we shall lose it. And unless we are conscious of it, we cannot use it. The use of this power depends upon attention. The degree of attention determines our capacity for the acquirement of knowledge, which is another name for power. Attention has been held to be the distinguishing mark of genius. The cultivation of attention depends upon practice. The incentive of attention is interest. The greater the interest, the greater the attention. The greater the attention, the greater the interest, action and reaction. Begin by paying attention. Now, before long, you will have aroused interest. This interest will attract more attention, and this attention will produce more interest, and so on and so on. This practice will enable you to cultivate the power of attention. Okay, now this week, concentrate upon your power to create. Seek insight, perception. Try to find a logical basis for the faith which is in you. Let the thought dwell on the fact that the physical man lives and moves and has his being in the sustainer of all organic life, air. We have to have air so that we must breathe. We breathe to live. Then let the thought rest on the fact that the spiritual man also lives and moves and has his being in a similar but subtler energy upon which he must depend for life, and that, as in the physical world, no life assumes form until after a seed is sown and no higher fruit than that of the parent stock can be produced. So in the spiritual world, no effect can be produced until the seed is sown, and the fruit will depend upon the nature of the seed, so that the results which you secure depend upon your perception of law in the mighty domain of causation, the highest evolution of human consciousness. As Emerson said, There is no thought in my mind, but it quickly tends to convert itself into a power and organizes a huge instrumentality of means. Fear is a powerful form of thought. It paralyzes the nerve centers, thus affecting the circulation of the blood. This, in turn, paralyzes the muscular system so that fear affects the entire being, body, brain, and nerve, physical, mental, and muscular systems. Of course, the way to overcome fear is to become conscious of power. What is this mysterious vital force which we call power? 
We don't really know, but then neither do we know what electricity is. But we do know that by conforming to the requirements of the law by which electricity is governed, it will be our obedient servant, that it will light our homes, our cities, run our machinery, and serve us in many useful capacities. And so it is with vital force. Although we don't know what it is, and possibly may never know, we do know that it is a primary force which manifests through living bodies, and that by complying with the laws and principles by which it is governed, we can open ourselves to a more abundant inflow of this vital energy, and thus express the highest possible degree of mental, moral, and spiritual efficiency. This part tells of a very simple way of developing this vital force. If you put into practice the information outlined in this lesson, you'll soon develop the sense of power which has been the distinguishing mark of genius. And now, part 19. The search for truth is no longer a haphazard adventure, but it's a systematic process and is logical in its operation. Every kind of experience is given a voice in shaping its decision. In seeking the truth, we're seeking ultimate cause. We know that every human experience is an effect. Then if we may ascertain the cause, and if we shall find that this cause is one which we can consciously control, the effect or the experience will be within our control also. Human experience will then no longer be the football of fate. A man will not be the child of fortune, but destiny. Fate and fortune will be controlled as readily as a captain controls his ship, or as an engineer controls his train. All things are finally resolvable into the same element, and as they are thus translatable one into the other, they must ever be in relation, and may never be in opposition to one another. In the physical world there are innumerable contrasts, and these may, for convenience sake, be designated by distinctive names. There are sizes, colors, shades, or ends to all things. There's a north pole and a south pole, an inside and an outside, a seen and an unseen, but these expressions merely serve to place extremes in contrast. They are names given to two different parts of one quantity. The two extremes are relative. They are not separate entities, but are two parts or aspects of the whole. In the mental world we find the same law. We speak of knowledge and ignorance, but ignorance is but a lack of knowledge, and is therefore found to be simply a word to express the absence of knowledge. It has no principle in itself. In the moral world we again find the same law. We speak of good and evil, but good is a reality, it's something tangible, while evil is found to be simply a negative condition, the absence of good. Evil is sometimes thought to be a very real condition, but it has no principle, no vitality, no life. We know this because it can always be destroyed by good, just as truth destroys error and light destroys darkness. So evil vanishes when good appears. There is therefore but one principle in the moral world. We find exactly the same law obtaining in the spiritual world. We speak of mind and matter as two separate entities, but clearer insight makes it evident that there is but one operative principle, and that is mind. Mind is the real and the eternal. Matter is forever changing. We know that in the eons of time, a hundred years is but as a day. Now, if we stand in any large city and let the eye rest upon the innumerable large and magnificent buildings, the vast array of modern automobiles, cellular telephones, the electric lights, and all of the other conveniences of modern civilization, we may remember that not one of them was there just over a century ago. And if we could stand on the same spot a hundred years from now, in all probability we should find that but few of them remained. In the animal kingdom we find the same law of change. The millions and millions of animals come and go, a few years constituting their span of life. 
In the plant world, the change is still more rapid. Many plants and nearly all grasses come and go in a single year. When we pass into the inorganic, we expect to find something even more substantial, but as we gaze on the apparently solid continent, we are told that it arose from the ocean. We see the giant mountain. We're told that the place where it now stands was once a lake. And as we stand in awe before the great cliffs in the Yosemite Valley, we can easily trace the path of the glaciers, which carried all before them. We're in the presence of continual change, and we know that this change is but the evolution of the universal mind, the grand process whereby all things are continually being created anew, and we come to know that matter is but a form which mind takes, and is therefore simply a condition. Matter has no principle. Mind is the only principle. We have then come to know that mind is the only principle which is operative in the physical, mental, moral, and spiritual world. We also know that this mind is static mind at rest. We also know that the ability of the individual to think is his ability to act upon the universal mind and convert it into dynamic mind or mind in motion. In order to do this, fuel must be applied in the form of food, for man cannot think without eating, and so we find that even a spiritual activity such as thinking cannot be converted into sources of pleasure and profit except by making use of material means. It requires energy of some kind, to collect electricity and convert it into dynamic power. It also requires the rays of the sun to give the necessary energy to sustain plant life. So it also requires energy in the form of food to enable the individual to think and thereby act upon the universal mind. You may know that thought constantly, eternally is taking form, is forever seeking expression, or you may not. But the fact remains that if your thought is powerful, constructive, and positive, this will be plainly evident in the state of your health, your business, and your environment. If your thought is weak, critical, destructive, and negative, generally it will manifest in your body as fear, worry, and nervousness, in your finance as lack and limitation, and in discordant conditions in your environment. All wealth is the offspring of power. Possessions are of value only as they confer power. Events are significant only as they affect power. All things represent certain forms and degrees of power. A knowledge of cause and effect is shown by the laws governing steam, electricity, chemical affinity, and gravitation enables men to plan courageously and to execute fearlessly. These laws are called natural laws because they govern the physical world. But all power is not physical power. There is also mental power and there is moral and spiritual power. What are our schools or universities but mental powerhouses, places where mental power is being developed? As there are many mighty powerhouses for the application of power to ponderous machinery, whereby raw material is collected and converted into the necessities and comforts of life, so the mental powerhouses collect the raw material and cultivate and develop it into a power which is infinitely superior to all the forces of nature, marvelous though they may be. Now what is this raw material which is being collected in these thousands of mental powerhouses all over the world and developed into a power which is evidently controlling every other power? In its static form, it is mind. In its dynamic form, it is thought. This power is superior because it exists on a higher plane, because it has enabled man to discover the law by which these wonderful forces of nature could be harnessed and made to do the work of hundreds and thousands of men. It has enabled man to discover laws whereby time and space have been annihilated and the law of gravitation overcome. Thought is the vital force or energy which is being developed 
and which has produced such startling results in the last half century as to bring about a world which would be absolutely inconceivable to a man existing only 50 or 25 years ago. If such results have been secured by organizing these mental powerhouses in 50 years, what may not be expected in yet another 50 years? The substance from which all things are created is infinite in quantity. We know that light travels at the rate of 186,000 miles per second, and we know that there are stars so remote that it takes light 2,000 years to reach us, and we know that such stars exist in all parts of the heaven. We know, too, that this light comes in waves, so that if the ether on which of these waves travel was not continuous, the light would fail to reach us. We can then only come to the conclusion that this substance or ether or raw material is universally present. How then does it manifest in form? In electrical science, a battery is formed by connecting the opposite poles of zinc and copper, which causes a current to flow from one to the other, and so provides energy. The same process is repeated in respect to every polarity, and as all form simply depends upon the rate of vibration and consequent relations of atoms to each other, if we wish to change the form of manifestation, we must change the polarity. This is the principle of causation. For your exercise this week, concentrate, and when I use the word concentrate, I mean all that that word implies. Become so absorbed in the object of your thought that you're conscious of nothing else, and do this a few minutes every day. You take the necessary time to eat in order that the body may be nourished. Why not take the time to assimilate your mental food? Let the thought rest on the fact that appearances are deceptive. The earth is not flat, neither is it stationary. The sky is not a dome. The sun does not move. The stars are not small specks of light. And matter, which was once supposed to be fixed, has found to be in a state of perpetual flux. Try to realize the day is fast approaching. Its dawn is now at hand, when modes of thought and action must be adjusted to rapidly increasing knowledge of the operation of eternal principles. The quote from Channing is appropriate. Silent thought is, after all, the mightiest agent in human affairs. Discover the remarkable journey of Anonymous John. No one likes feeling alone, anxious, or overweight. But John refused to let his circumstances define him. When his weight ballooned to a staggering 600 pounds, he made a choice to take control of his life. He began documenting his journey in his journal, and after shedding his first 103 pounds, he decided to share his story with the world. Through his journal, he offers inspiration and hope to anyone struggling with similar challenges. If you're looking to be inspired and uplifted, the Anonymous John podcast is for you. Join us on this journey of transformation and visit our website, theanonymousjohn.com. For many years, there's been an endless discussion as to the origin of evil. Theologians have told us that God is love and that God is omnipresent. If this is true, there is no place where God is not. Where then is evil? Satan and hell? Well, let us see. God is spirit. Spirit is the creative principle of the universe. Man is made in the image and likeness of God. Man is therefore a spiritual being. The only activity which spirit possesses is the power to think. Thinking is therefore a creative process. All form is therefore the result of the thinking process. The destruction of form must also be a result of the thinking process. Fictitious representations of form are the result of the creative power of thought, as in hypnotism. 
Apparent representations of form are the result of the creative power of thought, as in spiritualism. Invention, organization, and constructive work of all kinds are the result of the creative power of thought, as in concentration. When the creative power of thought is manifested for the benefit of humanity, we call the result good. When the creative power of thought is manifested in a destructive or evil manner, we call the result evil. This indicates the origin of both good and evil. They are simply words which have been coined in order to indicate the nature of the result of the thinking or the creative process. Thought necessarily precedes and predetermines action. Action precedes and predetermines conditions. Part 20 will throw more light upon this important subject. The spirit of a thing is that thing. It is necessarily fixed, changeless, and eternal. The spirit of you is you. Without the spirit, you'd be nothing. It becomes active through your recognition of it and its possibilities. You may have all of the wealth in Christendom, but unless you recognize it and make use of it, you will have no value. So with your spiritual wealth, unless you recognize it and use it, it will have no value. The one and only condition of spiritual power is use or recognition. All great things come through recognition. The scepter of power is consciousness, and thought is its messenger. And this messenger is constantly molding the realities of the invisible world into the conditions and environments of your objective world. Thinking is the true business of life. Power is the result. You are at times dealing with the magical power of thought and consciousness. What results can you expect so long as you remain oblivious to the power which has been placed within your control? So long as you do, you will limit yourself to superficial conditions and make of yourself a beast of burden for those who think, those who recognize their power, and those who know that unless we're willing to think, we shall have to work, and the less we think, the more we shall have to work, and the less we shall get for our work. The secret of power is a perfect understanding of the principles, forces, methods, and combinations of mind, and a perfect understanding of our relationship to the universal mind. It is well to remember that this principle is unchangeable. If this were not so, it would not be reliable. All principles are changeless. This stability is your opportunity. You are its active attribute, the channel for its activity. The universal can act only through the individual. When you begin to perceive that the essence of the universal is within yourself, is you, you begin to do things. You begin to feel your power. It's the fuel which fires the imagination, which lights the torch of inspiration, which gives vitality to thought, which enables you to connect with all the invisible forces of the universe. It is this power which will enable you to plan fearlessly and to execute masterfully. But perception will come only in the silence. This seems to be the condition required for all great purposes. You are a visualizing entity. Imagination is your workshop. It's here that your ideal is to be visualized. As a perfect understanding of the nature of this power is a primary condition for its manifestation, visualize the entire method over and over and over again so that you may use it whenever occasion requires. The infinity of wisdom is to follow the method whereby we may have the inspiration of the omnipotent universal mind on demand at any time. We can fail to recognize the world within and so exclude it from our consciousness, but it will still be the basic fact of all existence, and when we learn to recognize it, not only in ourselves, but in all persons, events, things, and circumstances, we shall have found the kingdom of heaven, which we are told is within us.
Our failures are a result of the operation of exactly the same principle. The principle is unchangeable. Its operation is exact. There is no deviation. If we think lack, limitation, discord, we shall find their fruits on every hand. If we think poverty, unhappiness, or disease, the thought messengers will carry this summons as readily as any other kind of thought, and the result is going to be just as certain. If we fear a coming calamity, we shall be able to say with Job, The thing I feared has come upon me. If we think unkindly or ignorantly, we shall thus attract to ourselves the results of our ignorance. This power of thought, if understood and correctly used, is the greatest labor-saving device ever dreamed of. But if not understood or improperly used, the result will in all probability be disastrous, as we've already seen. By the help of this power, you can confidently undertake things that are seemingly impossible. Because this power is the secret of all inspiration, and it's the secret of all genius. To become inspired means to get out of the beaten path, out of the rut, because extraordinary results require extraordinary means. When we come into a recognition of the unity of all things, and that the source of all power is within, we tap the source of inspiration. Inspiration is the art of imbibing, the art of self-realization, the art of adjusting the individual mind to that of the universal mind the art of attaching the proper mechanism to the source of all power, and it's the art of differentiating the formless into form, the art of becoming a channel for the flow of infinite wisdom, the art of visualizing perfection, the art of realizing the omnipresence of omnipotence. An understanding and appreciation of the fact that the infinite power is omnipresent and is therefore in the infinitely small as well as the infinitely large will enable us to absorb its essence. A further understanding of the fact that this power is spirit and therefore indivisible will enable us to appreciate its presence at all points. An understanding of these facts, first intellectually and then emotionally, will enable us to drink deeply from this ocean of infinite power. An intellectual understanding will be of no assistance. The emotions must be brought into action. Thought without feeling is cold. The required combination is thought and feeling. Inspiration is from within. The silence is necessary. The senses must be stilled. The muscles relaxed. Repose must be cultivated. When you have thus come into possession of a sense of poise and power, you'll be ready to receive the information or inspiration or wisdom which may be necessary for the development of your purpose. Now, don't confuse these methods with those of the clairvoyant. They have nothing in common. Inspiration is the art of receiving and makes for all that is best in life. Your business in life is to understand and command these invisible forces instead of letting them command and rule you. Power implies service. Inspiration implies power. To understand and apply the method of inspiration is to become a superman. We can live more abundantly every time we breathe if we consciously breathe with that intention. The if is a very important condition in this case. As the intention governs the attention, and without the attention you can secure only the results which everyone else secures, that is, a supply equal to the demand. In order to secure the larger supply, your demand must be increased, and as you consciously increase the demand, the supply will follow. You'll find yourself coming into a larger and larger supply of life, energy, and vitality. The reason for this is not difficult to understand. But it is another of the vital mysteries of life which does not seem to be generally appreciated. If you make it your own, you will find it one of the greatest realities of life. We are told that 
In him we live and move and have our being. And we are told that he is a spirit, and again that he is love, so that every time we breathe, we breathe this life, love, and spirit. This pranic energy, or pranic ether, we could not exist a moment without it. It's the cosmic energy. It is the life of the solar plexus. Every time we breathe, we fill our lungs with air and at the same time vitalize our body with this pranic ether, which is life itself, so that we have the opportunity of making a conscious connection with all life, all intelligence, and all substance. A knowledge of your relation and oneness with this principle that governs the universe and the simple method whereby you can consciously identify yourself with it gives you a scientific understanding of a law whereby you may free yourself from disease, from lack or limitation of any kind. In fact, it enables you to breathe the breath of life into your own nostrils. This breath of life is a superconscious reality. It is the essence of the I am. It is pure being or universal substance, and our conscious unity with it enables us to localize it and thus exercise the powers of this creative energy. Thought is creative vibration, and the quality of the conditions created will depend upon the quality of our thought, because we cannot express powers which we do not possess. We must be before we can. And we can do only to the extent to which we are. And so what we do will necessarily coincide with what we are, and what we are depends upon what we think. Every time you think, you start a train of causation, which will create a condition in strict accordance with the quality of the thought which originated it. Thought which is in harmony with the universal mind will result in corresponding conditions. Thought which is destructive or discordant will produce corresponding results. You may use thought constructively or destructively, but the immutable law will not allow you to plant a thought of one kind and reap the fruit of another. You are free to use this marvelous creative power as you will, but you must take the consequences. This is the danger from what is called willpower. There are those who seem to think that by force of will they can coerce this law, but they can sow seed of one kind and by willpower make it bear fruit of another. But the fundamental principle of creative power is in the universal, and therefore the idea of forcing a compliance with our wishes by the power of the individual will is an inverted conception which may appear to succeed for a while, but is eventually doomed to failure because it antagonizes the very power which it is seeking to use. It is the individual attempting to coerce the universal, the finite, in conflict with the infinite. Our permanent well-being will be best conserved by a conscious cooperation with the continuous forward movement of the great whole. Now, for your exercise this week, go into the silence and concentrate on the fact that in him we live and move and have our being is literally and scientifically exact, that you are because he is, that if he is omnipresent, he must be in you, that if he is all in all, you must be in him, that he is spirit and you are made in his image and likeness, and that the only difference between his spirit and your spirit is one of degree, that a part must be the same in kind and quality as the whole. When you can realize this clearly, you will have found the secret of the creative power of thought. You will have found the origin of both good and evil. You will have found the secret of the wonderful power of concentration. You will have found the key to the solution of every problem, whether physical, financial, or environmental. The power to think consecutively and deeply and clearly 
is an avowed and deadly enemy to mistakes and blunders, superstitions, unscientific theories, irrational beliefs, unbridled enthusiasm, and fanaticism. Haddock It is my privilege now to enclose Part 21. In Paragraph 7 you'll find that one of the secrets of success, one of the methods of organizing victory, one of the accomplishments of the master mind, is to think big thoughts. In Paragraph 8 you'll find that everything which we hold in our consciousness for any length of time becomes impressed upon our subconsciousness, and so becomes a pattern which the creative energy will wave into our life and environment. This is the secret of the wonderful power of prayer. We know that the universe is governed by law, that for every effect there must be a cause, and that the same cause, under the same conditions, will invariably produce the same effect. Consequently, if prayer has ever been answered, it will always be answered, if the proper conditions are complied with. This must necessarily be true, otherwise the universe would be a chaos instead of a cosmos. The answer to prayer is therefore subject to law, and this law is definite, exact, and scientific, just as are the laws governing gravitation and electricity. An understanding of this law takes the foundation of Christianity out of the realm of superstition and credulity, and places it upon the firm rock of scientific understanding. But unfortunately there are comparatively few persons who know how to pray. They understand that there are laws governing electricity, mathematics, and chemistry, but for some inexplicable reason, it never seems to occur to them that there also are spiritual laws, and that these laws are also definite, scientific, exact, and they operate with immutable precision. So here's part 21. The real secret of power is consciousness of power. The universal mind is unconditional. Therefore, the more conscious we become of our unity with this mind, the less conscious we shall become of conditions and limitations, and as we become emancipated or freed from conditions, we come into a realization of the unconditional that we have become free. As soon as we become conscious of the inexhaustible power in the world within, we begin to draw on this power and apply and develop the greater possibilities which this discernment has realized, because whatever we become conscious of is invariably manifested in the objective world, is brought forth into tangible expression. This is because the infinite mind, which is the source from which all things proceed, is one and indivisible, and each individual is a channel whereby this energy that is eternal is being manifested. Our ability to think is our ability to act upon this universal substance, and what we think is what is created or produced in the objective world. The result of this discovery is nothing less than marvelous, and it means that mind is extraordinary in quality, limitless in quantity, and it contains possibilities without number. To become conscious of this power is to become a live wire. It has the same effect as placing an ordinary wire in contact with a wire that is charged. The universal is the live wire. It carries power sufficient to meet every situation which might arise in the life of every individual. When the individual mind touches the universal mind, it receives all of the power that it requires. This is the world within. All science recognizes the reality of this world, and all power is contingent upon our recognition of this world. The ability to eliminate imperfect conditions depends upon mental action, and mental action depends upon consciousness of power. 
Therefore, the more conscious we become of our unity with the source of all power, the greater will be our power to control and master every condition. Large ideas have a tendency to eliminate all smaller ideas, so that it is well to hold ideas large enough to counteract and destroy all small or undesirable tendencies. This will remove innumerable petty and annoying obstacles from your path. You also become conscious of a larger world of thought, thereby increasing your mental capacity as well as placing yourself in position to accomplish something of value. This is one of the secrets of success, one of the methods of organizing victory, one of the accomplishments of the master mind. He thinks big thoughts. The creative energies of mind find no more difficulty in handling large situations than in handling small ones. Mind is just as much present in the infinitely large as in the infinitely small. When we realize these facts concerning mind, we understand how we may bring ourselves any condition by creating the corresponding conditions in our consciousness, because everything which is held for any length of time in the consciousness eventually becomes impressed upon the subconscious, and thus becomes a pattern which the creative energy will wave into the life and environment of the individual. In this way, conditions are produced, and we find that our lives are simply the reflection of our own predominant thoughts, our mental attitude. We see then that the science of correct thinking is the one science, that it includes all other sciences. From this science we learn that every thought creates an impression on the brain, that these impressions create mental tendencies, and these tendencies create character, ability, and purpose, and that the combined action of character, ability, and purpose determines the experiences with which we shall meet in life. These experiences come to us through the law of attraction. Through the action of this law, we meet in the world without the experiences which corresponds to our world within. The predominant thought or the mental attitude is the magnet, and the law is that like attracts like. Consequently, the mental attitude will invariably attract such conditions as corresponds to its very nature. This mental attitude is our personality and is composed of the thoughts which we have been creating in our own mind. Therefore, if we wish a change in conditions, all that is necessary is to change our thought. This will in turn change our mental attitude, which will in turn change our personality, which will in turn change the persons, things, and conditions, or the experiences with which we meet in life. It is, however, no easy matter to change the mental attitude but by persistent effort it may be accomplished. The mental attitude is patterned after the mental pictures which have been photographed on the brain. If you don't like the pictures, destroy the negatives and create new pictures. This is the art of visualization. Now as soon as you've done this, you'll begin to attract new things, and the new things will correspond to the new pictures. To do this, impress on the mind a perfect picture of the desire which you wish to have objectified and continue to hold the picture in mind until results are obtained. If the desire is one which requires determination, ability, talent, courage, power, or any other spiritual power, these are necessary essentials for your picture. Build them in. They are the vital part of the picture. They're the feeling which combines with thought and creates the irresistible magnetic power which draws the things you require to you. They give your picture life, and life means growth, and as soon as it belongs to grow, the result is practically assured. Do not hesitate to aspire to the highest possible attainments in anything you may undertake. 
for the mind forces are ever ready to lend themselves to a purposeful will in the effort to crystallize its highest aspirations into acts, accomplishments, and events. An illustration of how these mind forces operate is suggested by the method in which all of our habits are formed. We do a thing, then do it again and again and again, until it becomes easy and perhaps almost automatic. And the same rule applies in breaking any and all bad habits. We stop doing something and then avoid it again and again and again until we're free from it entirely. And if we fail now and then, we should by no means lose hope, for the law is absolute and invincible, and it gives us credit for every effort and every success, even though our efforts and successes are perhaps intermittent. There is no limit to what this law can do for you. Dare to believe in your own idea. Remember that nature is plastic to the ideal. Think of the ideal as an already accomplished fact. The real battle of life is one of ideas. It's being fought out by the few against the many. On the one side is the constructive and creative thought. On the other side, the destructive and negative thought. The creative thought is dominated by an ideal. The passive thought is dominated by appearances. On both sides are men of science, men of letters, and men of affairs. On the creative side are men who spend their time in laboratories or over microscopes and telescopes, side by side with the men who dominate the commercial, political, and scientific world. On the negative side are men who spend their time investigating law and precedent, men who mistake theology for religion, statesmen who mistake might for right, and all the millions who seem to prefer precedence to progress, who are eternally looking backward instead of forward, who see only the world without but know nothing of the world within. In the last analysis, there are but these two classes. All men will have to take their place on one side or the other. They will have to go forward or go back. There is no standing still in a world where all is motion. It is this attempt to stand still that gives sanction and force to arbitrary and unequal codes of law. That we are in a period of transition is evidenced by the unrest which is everywhere apparent. The complaint of humanity is as a roll of heaven's artillery, commencing with low and threatening notes and increasing until the sound is sent from cloud to cloud and the lightning splits the air and the earth. The sentries who patrol the most advanced outposts of the industrial, political, and religious world are calling anxiously to each other, What of the night? The danger and insecurity of the position they occupy and attempt to hold is becoming more apparent every single hour. The dawn of a new era necessarily declares that the existing order of things cannot much longer be. Now the issue between the old regime and the new, the crux of the social problem, is entirely a question of conviction in the minds of the people as to the nature of the universe. When they realize that the transcendent force of spirit or mind of the cosmos is within each individual, it will be possible to frame laws that shall consider the liberties and rights of the many instead of the privileges of the few. As long as the people regard the cosmic power as a power non-human and alien to humanity, so long will it be comparatively easy for a supposed privileged class to rule by divine right in spite of every protest of social sentiment. The real interest of democracy is therefore to exalt, emancipate, and recognize the divinity of the human spirit, to recognize that all power is from within, that no human being has any more power than any other human being, except such as may willingly be delegated to him. The old regime would have us believe that the law was superior to the lawmakers, 
Herein is the gist of the social crime of every form of privilege and personal inequality, the institutionalizing of the fatalistic doctrine of divine election. The divine mind is the universal mind. It makes no exceptions. It plays no favorites. It does not act through sheer caprice or from anger, jealousy, or wrath. Neither can it be flattered, cajoled, or moved by sympathy or petition to supply man with some need which he thinks necessary for his happiness or even his existence. The divine mind makes no exceptions in favor of any individual, but when the individual understands and realizes his unity with the universal principle, he will appear to be favored because he will have found the source of all health, all wealth, and all power. For your exercise this week, concentrate on the truth. Try to realize that the truth shall make you free. That is, nothing can permanently stand in the way of your perfect success when you learn to apply the scientifically correct thought methods and principles. Realize that you are externalizing in your environment your inherent soul potencies. Realize that the silence offers an ever-available and almost unlimited opportunity for awakening the highest conception of truth. Try to comprehend that omnipotence itself is absolute silence. All else is change, activity, and limitation. Silent thought concentration is, therefore, the true method of reaching, awakening, and then expressing the wonderful potential power of the world within. Now remember these words from Marden. The possibilities of thought training are infinite, its consequence eternal, and yet few take the pains to direct their thinking into channels that will do them good, but instead leave all to chance. In Part 22, you'll find that thoughts are spiritual seeds, which, when planted in the subconscious mind, have a tendency to sprout and grow. But unfortunately, the fruit is frequently not to our liking. The various forms of inflammation, paralysis, nervousness, and diseased conditions generally are the manifestation of fear, worry, care, anxiety, jealousy, hatred, and similar other thought. The life processes are carried on by two distinct methods. First, the taking up and making use of nutritive material which is necessary for constructing cells. Secondly, breaking down and excreting the waste material. All life is based upon these constructive and destructive activities, and as food and water and air are the only requisites necessary for the construction of cells, it would seem that the problem of prolonging life indefinitely would not be a very difficult one. Now, however strange it may seem, it's the second or destructive activity that is, with rare exception, the cause of all disease. The waste material accumulates and saturates the tissues, which causes auto-intoxication. This may be partial or general. In the first case, the disturbance will be local. In the second place, it will affect the whole system. The problem then before us is in the healing of disease is to increase the inflow and distribution of vital energy throughout the system. And this can only be done by eliminating thoughts of fear, worry, care, anxiety, jealousy, hatred, and every other destructive thought which tend to tear down and destroy the nerves and glands which control the excretion and elimination of poisonous and waste matter. Nourishing foods and strengthening tonics can't bestow life because these are but secondary manifestations to life. The primary manifestation of life and how you may get in touch with it is explained in the part which I have the privilege of enclosing herewith, part 22.
Knowledge is of priceless value because by applying knowledge we can make our future what we wish it to be. When we realize that our present character, our present environment, our present ability, our present physical condition are all the result of past methods of thinking, then we shall begin to have some conception of the value of knowledge. If the state of our health is not all that could be desired, let us examine our method of thinking. Let's remember that every thought produces an impression on the mind. Every impression is a seed which will sink into the subconscious and form a tendency. The tendency will be to attract other similar thoughts, and before we know it, we shall have a crop which then must be harvested. If these thoughts contain disease germs, the harvest will be sickness, decay, weakness, and failure. The question is, what are we thinking? What are we creating? What is the harvest to be? If there is any physical condition which it makes necessary to change, the law governing visualization will be found effective. Make a mental image of physical perfection. Hold it in the mind until it is absorbed by the consciousness. Many have eliminated chronic ailments in a few weeks by this method, and thousands have overcome and destroyed all manner of ordinary physical disturbances also by this method in only a few days, sometimes in a few minutes. It is through the law of vibration that the mind exercises this control over the body. We know that every mental action is a vibration, and we know that all form is simply a mode of motion, a rate of vibration. Therefore, any given vibration immediately modifies every atom in the body. Every life cell is affected, and an entire chemical change is made in every group of life cells. Everything in the universe is what it is by virtue of its rate of vibration. Change the rate of vibration, and you change the nature, quality, and form. The vast panorama of nature, both visible and invisible, is being constantly changed by simply changing the rate of vibration. And as thought is a vibration, we can also exercise this power. We can change the vibration and thus produce any condition which we desire to manifest in our bodies. We're all using this power every minute. The trouble is most of us are using it consciously and thus producing undesirable results. The problem is to use it intelligently and produce only desirable results. Now, this should not be difficult because we all have had sufficient experience to know what produces pleasant vibration in the body, and we also know the causes which produce the unpleasant and disagreeable sensations. All that is necessary is to consult our own experience. When our thought has been uplifted, progressive, constructive, courageous, noble, kind, or in any other way desirable, we have set in motion vibrations which brought about certain results. When our thought has been filled with envy, hatred, jealousy, criticism, or any of the other thousand and one forms of discord, certain vibrations were set in motion which brought about certain other results of a different nature, and each of these rates of vibration, if kept up, crystallized in form. In the first case, the result was mental, moral, and physical health, and in the second case, discord, inharmony, and disease. We can understand, then, something of the power which the mind possesses over the body. The objective mind has certain effects on the body which are readily recognized. Someone says something to you which strikes you as ludicrous, and you laugh, possibly until your whole body shakes, which shows that thought has control over the muscles of your body. Or someone says something which excites your symphony, and your eyes fill with tears, which shows that thought controls the glands of your body. Or someone says something which makes you angry, and the blood mounts to your cheek, which shows that thought controls the circulation of your blood. 
that as these experiences are all the results of the action of your objective mind over the body, the results are of a temporary nature. They soon pass away, and they leave the situation just as it was before. Now let's see how the action of the subconscious mind over the body differs. You receive a wound, thousands of cells being the work of healing at once. In a few days or a few weeks, the work is complete. You may even break a bone. No surgeon on earth can weld the parts together, and I'm not referring to the insertion of rods or other devices to strengthen or replace bones. Now, he may set the bone for you, and the subjective mind will immediately begin the process of welding the parts together, and in a short time, the bone is as solid as it ever was. You may swallow poison. The subjective mind will immediately discover the danger and make violent efforts to eliminate it. You might be infected with a dangerous germ. The subjective will at once commence to build a wall around the infected area and destroy the infection by absorbing it in the white blood corpuscles which it supplies for exactly that purpose. These processes of the subconscious mind usually proceed without our personal knowledge or direction, and so long as we don't interfere, the result is perfect. But as these millions of repair cells are all intelligent and respond to our thought, they are often paralyzed and rendered impotent by our thoughts of fear, doubt, and anxiety. They're like an army of workmen ready to start an important piece of work, but every time they get started on the undertaking, a strike is called, or plans changed, until they finally get discouraged and give up. The way to health is founded on the laws of vibration, which is the basis of all science, and this law is brought into operation by the mind, by the world within. It's a matter of individual effort and practice. Our world of power is within. If we are wise, we shall not waste time and effort in trying to deal with effects as we find them in the world without, which is only an external reflection. We shall always find cause in the world within. By changing the cause, we can then change the effect. Every cell in your body is intelligent and will respond to your direction. The cells are all creators and will create the exact pattern which you give them. Therefore, when perfect images are placed before the subjective, the creative energies will build a perfect body. Brain cells are constructed in the same way. The quality of the brain is governed by the state of mind or mental attitude so that if undesirable mental attitudes are conveyed to the subjective, they will in turn be transferred to the body. We can therefore readily see that if we wish the body to manifest health, strength, and vitality, this must be the predominant thought. We know then that every element of the human body is the result of a rate of vibration. We know that mental action is a rate of vibration. We know that a higher rate of vibration governs, modifies, controls, changes or destroys a lower rate of vibration. We know that the rate of vibration is governed by the character brain cells, and finally, we know how to create these brain cells. Therefore, we know how to make any physical change in the body we desire, and having secured a working knowledge of the power of the mind to this extent, we've come to know that there is practically no limitation which can be placed upon our ability to place ourselves in harmony with natural law, which is omnipotent. This influence or control over the body by mind is coming to be more and more generally understood, and many physicians are now giving the matter their earnest attention. Dr. Albert T. Schofield, who has written several important books on the subject, says the subject of mental therapeutics is still ignored in medical works generally. In our physiologies, no reference is made to the central controlling power that rules the body for its good. 
and the power of the mind over the body is seldom spoken. In the part which I have the honor to transmit herewith, you'll find that money weaves itself into the entire fabric of our very existence, that the law of success is service, that we get what we give, and for this reason we should consider it a great privilege to be able to give. We have found that thought is the creative activity behind every constructive enterprise. We can therefore give nothing of more practical value than our thought. Creative thought requires attention, and the power of attention is, as we have found, the weapon of the superman. Attention develops concentration, concentration develops spiritual power, and spiritual power is the mightiest force in existence. This is the science which embraces all sciences. It is the art which, above all arts, is relevant to human life. In the mastery of this science and this art, there is opportunity for unending progression. Perfection in this is not acquired in six days, nor in six weeks, nor in six months. It's the labor of life. Not to go forward is to go backward. It is inevitable that the entertainment of positive, constructive, and unselfish thoughts should have a far-reaching effect for good. Compensation is the keynote of the universe. Nature is constantly seeking to strike an equilibrium. Where something is sent out, something must be received, else there should be a vacuum formed. By observance of this rule, you cannot fail to profit in such measure as to amplify justly your effort along this line. Part 23 The money consciousness is an attitude of mind. It is the open door to the arteries of commerce. It is the receptive attitude. Desire is the attractive force which sets the current in motion, and fear is the great obstacle by which the current is stopped or completely reversed or turned away from us. Fear is just the opposite from money consciousness. It is poverty consciousness, and as the law is unchangeable, we get exactly what we give. If we fear we get what we feared, money weaves itself into the entire fabric of our very existence. It engages the best thoughts of the best minds. We make money by making friends, and we enlarge our circle of friends by making money for them, by helping them, by being of service to them. The first law of success, then, is service, and this, in turn, is built on integrity and justice. The man who, at least, is not fair in his intention is simply ignorant. He has missed the fundamental law of all exchange. He's impossible. He will lose surely and certainly. He may not know it, but he may think he's winning, but he's doomed to certain defeat. He cannot cheat the infinite. The law of compensation will demand of him an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The forces of life are volatile. They are composed of our thought and ideals, and these in turn are molted into form. Our problem is to keep an open mind, to constantly reach out for the new, to recognize opportunity, to be interested in the race rather than the goal, for the pleasure is in the pursuit rather than the possession. You can make money a magnet of yourself, but to do so you must first consider how you can make money for other people. If you have the necessary insight to perceive and utilize opportunities and favorable conditions and recognize values, you can put yourself in position to take advantage of them. But your greatest success will come as you are enabled to assist others. What benefits one must benefit all. A generous thought is filled with strength and vitality. A selfish thought contains the germs of dissolution. It will disintegrate and then pass away. Great financiers like Turner, Gates, Trump, and others are simply channels for the distribution of wealth. 
Enormous amounts come and go, but it would be as dangerous to stop the outgo as the income. Both ends must remain open, and so our greatest success will come as we recognize that it is just as essential to give as to get. If we recognize the omnipotent power that is the source of all supply, we will adjust our consciousness to this supply in such a way that it will constantly attract all that is necessary to itself, and we shall find that the more we give, the more we get. Giving in this sense implies service. The banker gives his money, the merchant gives his goods, the author gives his thought, the workman gives his skill. All have something to give, but the more they give, the more they get. And the more they get, the more they are enabled to give. The financier gets much because he gives much. He thinks. He is seldom a man that lets anyone else do his thinking for him. He wants to know results and how they are to be secured. You must show him. When you can do this, he will furnish the means by which hundreds or thousands may profit. And in proportion, as they are successful, will he be successful. Morgan, Rockefeller, Carnegie, and others did not get rich because they lost money for other people. On the contrary, it's because they made money for other people that they became the wealthiest men in the wealthiest country on the globe. The average person is entirely innocent of any deep thinking. He accepts the ideas of others and repeats them, in very much the same way as a parrot repeats things. This is readily seen when we understand the method which is used to form public opinion. And this docile attitude on the part of a large majority who seem perfectly willing to let a few persons do all of their thinking for them is what enables a few men in a great many countries to usurp all the avenues of power and hold the millions in subjugation. The power of attention is called concentration. This power is directed by the will. For this reason, we must refuse to concentrate or think of anything except the things we desire. Many are constantly concentrating upon sorrow, loss, and discord of every kind. As thought is creative, it necessarily follows that this concentration inevitably leads to more loss, more sorrow, and more discord. How could it be otherwise? On the other hand, when we meet with success, gain, or any other desirable condition, we naturally concentrate upon the effects of these things, and thereby create more, and so it follows that much leads to more. How an understanding of this principle can be utilized in the business world is well told by an associate of mine. Spirit, whatever else it may or may not be, must be considered as the essence of consciousness, the substance of mind, the reality underlying thought, and as all ideas are phases of the activity of consciousness, mind, or thought, it follows that in spirit and in it alone is to be found the ultimate fact, the real thing, or the idea. Now this being admitted, does it not seem reasonable to hold that a true understanding of spirit and its laws of manifestation would be about the most practical thing that a practical person can hope to find? Does it not seem certain that if the practical men of the world could but realize this fact, they would fall all over themselves in getting to the place in which they might obtain such knowledge of spiritual things and laws. These men are not fools. They need only to grasp the fundamental fact in order to move in the direction of that which is the essence of all achievement. Let me give you a concrete example. I know a man in Chicago whom I had always considered to be quite materialistic. He had made several successes in life and also several failures. The last time I had a talk with him, he was practically down and out as compared with his former business condition. It looked as if he had indeed reached the end of his rope, for he was well advanced into the stage of middle age, 
and new ideas came more slowly and less frequently to him than in former years. He said to me in substance, I know that all things that work out in business are the result of thought. Any fool knows that. Just now I seem to be short on thoughts and good ideas. But if this all-mind teaching is correct, it should be possible for the individual to attain a direct connection with infinite mind, and in infinite mind there must be the possibility of all kinds of good ideas which a man of my courage and experience could put to practical use in the business world. Not only that, but make a big success of it. It looks good to me, and I'm going to look into it. That was several years ago. The other day I heard of this man again. Talking to a friend, I said, What has become of our old friend, Mr. X? Has he ever gotten on his feet again? The friend looked at me in amazement. Why, said he, don't you know about Mr. X's great success? He is the big man in the blank company. Naming a concern which has made a phenomenal success during the last 18 months and is now well known by reason of its advertisements from one end of the country to another and also abroad. He is the man who supplied the big idea for that concern. Why, he's about half a million dollars to the good and is moving rapidly toward the million mark, all in the space of 18 months. I had not connected this man with the enterprise mentioned, although I knew of the wonderful success of the company. Investigation has shown that the story is true and the above-stated facts are not exaggerated in the slightest. Now, what do you think of that? To me, it means that this man actually made the direct connection with infinite mind, spirit, and having found it, he set to work to use it for him. He used it in his business. Now, does this sound sacrilegious or blasphemous? I hope it does not. I do not mean it to be so. Take away the implication of personality or magnified human nature from the conception of the infinite, and you have left the conception of an infinite presence power, the quintessence of which is consciousness, in fact, at the last spirit. As this man also, at the last, must be considered as a manifestation of spirit, there is nothing sacrilegious in the idea that he, being spirit, should so harmonize himself with his origin and source that he would be able to manifest at least a minor degree of its power. All of us do this, more or less, when we use our minds in the direction of creative thought. This man did more. He went about it in an intensely practical manner. I've not consulted him about his method of procedure, though I intend doing so at the first opportunity, but he not only drew upon the infinite supply for the ideas which he needed and which formed the seed of his success, but they also used the creative power of thought in building up for himself an idealistic pattern of that which he hoped to manifest in material form, adding thereto, changing, improving its detail, from time to time, proceeding from the general outline to the finished detail. I judge this to be the facts of the case, not alone from my recollection of the conversation only a few years ago, but also because I have found the same thing to be true in the cases of other prominent men who have made similar manifestation of creative thought. Those who may shrink from this idea of employing the infinite powers to aid one in his work in the material world should remember that if the infinite objected in the least to such a procedure, that thing could never happen. The infinite is quite able to take care of itself. Spirituality is quite practical. It's very practical, intensely practical. It teaches that spirit is the real thing, the whole thing, and that matter is but plastic stuff which spirit is able to create, mold, manipulate, and fashion to its will. Spirituality is the most practical thing in the world the only really and absolutely practical thing that there is. 
This week concentrate on the fact that man is not a body with a spirit, but a spirit with a body, and that it is for this reason that his desires are incapable of any permanent satisfaction in anything not spiritual. Money is therefore of no value except to bring about the conditions which we desire, and these conditions are necessarily harmonious. Harmonious conditions necessitate sufficient supply, so that if there appears to be any lack, we should realize that the idea or soul of money is service, and as this thought takes form, channels of supply will be opened, and you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that spiritual methods are entirely practical. It was Francis Larimer Warner who said, We have discovered that premeditated orderly thinking for a purpose matures that purpose into fixed form, so that we may be absolutely sure of the result of our dynamic experiment. Enclosed you'll find part 24, which is your final lesson of this course. If you've practiced each of the exercises a few minutes every day as suggested, you will have found that you can get out of life exactly what you wish by first putting into life that which you wish, and you will probably agree with a student who said, the thought is almost overwhelming, so vast, so available, so definite, so reasonable, and so usable. The fruit of this knowledge is, as it were, a gift of the gods. It is the truth that makes men free, not only free from every lack and limitation, but free from sorrow, worry, and care. And is it not wonderful to realize that this law is no respecter of persons, that it makes no difference what your habit of thought may be, the way has been prepared. If you're inclined to be religious, the greatest religious teacher the world has ever known, made the way so plain that all may follow. If your mental bias is toward physical science, the law will operate with mathematical certainty. If you are inclined to be philosophical, Plato or Emerson may be your teacher, but in either case you may reach degrees of power to which it is impossible to assign any limit. An understanding of this principle, I believe, is the secret for which the ancient alchemists vainly sought, because it explains how gold in the mind may be transmuted into gold in the heart and in the hand. So here's part 24. When the scientists first put the sun in the center of the solar system and sent the earth spinning around it, there was immense surprise and consternation. The whole idea was self-evidently false. Nothing was more certain than the movement of the sun across the sky, and anyone could see it descend behind the western hills and sink into the sea. Scholars raged, and scientists rejected the idea as absurd, yet the evidence has finally carried conviction in the minds of all. We speak of a bell as a sounding body, yet we know that all the bell can do is to produce vibrations in the air. When these vibrations come at the rate of 16 per second, they cause a sound to be heard in the mind. It is also possible for the mind to hear vibrations up to the rate of 38,000 vibrations per second. When the number increases beyond this, all is silence again, so that we know that the sound is not in the bell, it is our, our own minds. We speak and even think of the sun as giving light, yet we know it is simply giving forth energy, which produces vibrations in the ether at the rate of 400 trillion a second, causing what are termed light waves, so that we know that we call light is simply a form of energy and that only the light there is, is the sensation caused in the mind by the motion of waves. When the number increases, the light changes in color, each change in color being caused by shorter and more rapid vibrations, so that although we speak of the rose as being red, and the grass as being green, or the sky as being blue, 
we know that the colors exist only in our minds and are the sensations experienced by us as the result of the vibrations of light waves. When the vibrations are reduced below 400 trillion a second, they no longer affect us as light, but we experience the sensation of heat. It's evident, therefore, that we cannot depend upon the evidence of the senses for our information concerning the realities of things. If we did, we should believe that the sun moved, that the world was flat instead of round, and that the stars were bits of light instead of vast suns. The whole range, then, of the theory and practice of any system of metaphysics consists in knowing the truth concerning yourself and the world in which you live, in knowing that in order to express harmony, you must think harmony, in order to express health, you must think health, and in order to express abundance, you must think abundance. To do this, you must reverse the evidence of the senses. When you come to know that every form of disease, sickness, lack, and limitation are simply the result of wrong thinking, you will have come to know the truth which shall make you free. You will see how mountains may be removed. If these mountains consist only of doubt, fear, distrust, or other forms of discouragement, they are nonetheless real, and they need not only to be removed, but to be cast out into the sea. Your real work consists in convincing yourself of the truth of these statements. When you have succeeded in doing this, you will have no difficulty in thinking the truth, and as has been shown, the truth contains a vital principle and will manifest itself. Those who heal diseases by mental methods have come to know this truth. They demonstrate it in their lives and in the lives of others daily. They know that life, health, and abundance are omnipresent, filling all space. And they know that those who allow disease or lack of any kind to manifest have as yet not come into an understanding of this great law. As all conditions are thought creations and therefore entirely mental, disease and lack are simply mental conditions in which the person fails to perceive the truth. As soon as the error is removed, that condition is removed. The method for removing this error is to go into the silence and know the truth. As all mind is one mind, you can do this for yourself or anyone else. If you've learned to form mental images of the conditions desired, this will be the easiest and quickest way to secure results. If not, results can be accomplished by argument, by the process of convincing yourself absolutely of the truth of your statement. Remember, and this is one of the most difficult as well as most wonderful statements to grasp, remember that no matter what the difficulty is, no matter where it is, no matter who is affected, you have no patient but yourself. You have nothing to do but to convince yourself of the truth which you desire to see manifested. This is an exact scientific statement in accordance with every system of metaphysics in existence, and no permanent results are ever secured in any other way. Every form of concentration, forming mental images, argument, and auto-suggestion are all simply methods by which you are enabled to realize the truth. If you desire to help someone to destroy some form of lack, limitation, or error, the correct method is not to think of the person whom you wish to help. The intention to help them is entirely sufficient, as this puts you in mental touch with the person. Then drive out of your own mind any belief of lack, limitation, disease, danger, difficulty, or whatever the trouble might be. As soon as you have succeeded in doing this, the result will have been accomplished and the person will be free. But remember, thought is creative, and consequently, every time you allow your thought to rest on any inharmonious condition, you must realize that such conditions are apparent only. They have no reality. That spirit is the only reality, and it can never be less than perfect.
All thought is a form of energy, a rate of vibration, but a thought of the truth is the highest rate of vibration known, and consequently destroys every form of error in exactly the same way that light destroys darkness. No form of error can exist when the truth appears. So that your entire mental work consists in coming into an understanding of the truth, this will enable you to overcome every form of lack, limitation, or disease of any kind. We can get no understanding of the truth from the world without. The world without is relative only. Truth is absolute. We must therefore find it in the world within. To train the mind to see truth only is to express true conditions only. Our ability to do this will be an indication as to the progress that we're making. The absolute truth is that the I is perfect and complete. The real I is spiritual and can therefore never be less than perfect. It can never have any lack, limitation, or disease. The flash of genius does not have origin in the molecular motion of the brain. It is inspired by the ego, the spiritual I, which is one with the universal mind. And it is our ability to recognize this unity, which is the cause of all inspiration and all genius. These results are far-reaching and have effect upon generations yet to come. They are the pillars of fire which mark the path that millions follow. Truth is not the result of logical training or of experimentation or even of observation. It is the product of a developed consciousness. Truth within a Caesar manifests in a Caesar's deportment, in his life and his actions, his influence upon social forms and progress. Your life and your actions and your influence in the world will depend upon the degree of truth which you are enabled to perceive, for truth will not manifest in creeds but in conduct. Truth manifests in character, and the character of a man should be the interpretation of his religion, or what to him is truth, and this will in turn be evidenced in the character of his possession. If a man complains of the drift of his fortune, he is just as unjust to himself, as if he should deny rational truth, though it stand patent and irrefutable. Our environment and the innumerable circumstances and accidents of our lives already exist in the subconscious personality which attracts to itself the mental and physical material which is congenial to its nature. Thus our future being determined from our present, and if there should be apparent injustice in any feature or phase of our personal life, we must look within for the cause, try to discover the mental fact which is responsible for this outward manifestation. It is this truth which makes you free, and it is the conscious knowledge of this truth which will enable you to overcome every difficulty. The conditions which you meet in the world without are invariably the result of the conditions obtaining in the world within. Therefore, it follows with scientific accuracy that by holding the perfect ideal in mind, you can bring about ideal conditions in your environment. If you see only the incomplete, the imperfect, the relative, the limited, these conditions will manifest in your life. But if you train your mind to see and realize the spiritual ego, the I, which is forever perfect and complete, harmonious, wholesome, and helpful conditions will only be manifested. As thought is creative and the truth is the highest and most perfect thought which anyone can think, it becomes self-evident that to think the truth is to create that which is true, and it is again evident that when truth comes into being, that which is false must cease to be. The universal mind is the totality of all mind which is in existence. Spirit is mind because spirit is intelligent. The words are, therefore, synonymous. The difficulty with which you have to contend is to realize that mind is not individual. 
It is omnipresent. It exists everywhere. In other words, there is no place where it is not. It is therefore universal. Men have heretofore generally used the word God to indicate this universal creative principle. But the word God does not convey the right meaning. Most people understand this word to mean something outside of themselves, while exactly the contrary is the fact. It is our very life. Without it, we would be dead. We would cease to exist. The minute the spirit leaves the body, we are as nothing. Therefore, spirit is... Now, the only activity which the spirit possesses is the power to think. Therefore, thought must be creative because spirit is creative. This creative power is impersonal, and your ability to think is your ability to control it and make use of it for the benefit of yourself and others. When the truth of this statement is realized, understood, and appreciated, you will have come into possession of the master key. But remember that only those who are wise enough to understand, broad enough to weigh the evidence, firm enough to follow their own judgment, and strong enough to make the sacrifice exacted may enter and partake. This week try to realize that this is truly a wonderful world in which we live, that you are a wonderful being, that many are awakening to a knowledge of the truth, and as fast as they awake and come into knowledge of the things which have been prepared for them, they too realize that I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man, the splendors which exist for those who find themselves in the promised land. They have crossed the river of judgment and have arrived at the point of discrimination between the true and the false, and have found that all they ever willed or dreamed was but a faint concept of the dazzling reality. Remember these words by S. Smiles. Though an inheritance of acres may be bequeathed, an inheritance of knowledge and wisdom cannot. The wealthy man may pay others for doing his work for him, but it is impossible to get his thinking done for him by another or to purchase any kind of self-culture. Thank you for tuning in to this episode with Charles Honnell. If you're enjoying the content and would like to help the podcast grow, you can support us by subscribing or making a small donation through the link in the show notes. As a subscriber, you will also gain access to exclusive episodes. Thank you for being a member of the Resilient Mind community.